0: Thank you for that song, Myron, and the children's lesson, Brother Bill, and the opening, Eldon. I um, think all three of the songs, all three of the uh, parts of the service so far flow together. And the message with the title of the message is Adequ- Adequate Provisions, so that would apply with a children's lesson. And um, how the Lord speaks to us or how the devil speaks to us in different ways goes with the uh, other part of the message too. So we'll look to what the Lord has for us this part of the service as we do that why don't we just pause for a word of prayer thank you Lord for your goodness to us no Lord it is not a straight road it's not a road where we can see every curve and around every curve and over and beyond every hill we can't see Lord But, Lord, you do lead us step by step as we look to you. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, each one of us this morning. Thank you for bringing Mary home. And thank you for what you've done with her and her life there. And also Claudia. And uh, pray you would direct both of them for their future. And then Lord, we just pray you direct each one of us, especially if we think that's a congregation here, and ask you, Lord, to direct us as a congregation. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. We may not always understand, but Lord, we can trust you. And we thank you. The trust that we have is that you are good, that you change not, that your way and your, uh, their security, and there is power, and there is blessing in your presence. And we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start a new book study this morning, similar to what I've done with Ruth some months ago which was uh, my first attempt at a book study or the Old Testament. That was fairly easy because it's a um, historical book and you can sort of flow through there a little easier maybe than some of the others. I just found out last evening that Brother Leonard at Harmony is also for the first time ever going through a book study. He just started and he's starting with Matthew. I say praise the Lord and God bless him. I'm not starting with Matthew. It's been my goal for some time, though, to go a little bit more in the direction of a verse-by-verse teaching. And that could bring some balance to only textual or topical teaching. And I, I believe, I've heard it said, and I really believe it, that if you actually go through the scripture that way, you will address every possible modern topic that's possible as you go through the scripture, because it's all in here, in its principle. So then the question comes, as I was pondering before the Lord, where do I go? Decision is two ways. First of all, maybe what do we need as a congregation? That's always, as we go before the Lord for a a message, we need to have that in mind. Lord, what do we need? And then the second one is, what can I as a teacher give? That has to come before the Lord too. So I thought I would need to choose a shorter book. That's why I had chose Ruth instead of Leviticus in the Old Testament. I'll let Eldon tackle this. I'll give him a title for Leviticus. It's called Diseases, Discharges, and Dead Animals, the Gospel According to Leviticus. I'll let you uh, try, try that one, or maybe Alan, <laughs> but not me. So as I consider us at the congregation and me as a teacher, and I definitely desired a New Testament book, I could have chosen James, 1 John, Ephesians, and some others. But I chose one that I think is both relevant for us and simple enough for me. So I chose a simple but passionate man named Peter. <laughs> you know Peter, that fisherman from Galilee. He's like me, in that way he wasn't highly educated. He was a first in many ways. He was one of Jesus' first disciples. When the disciples are named, he is always named first. He was part of the inner core close to Jesus. Um, He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was, I think, when they raised that Jairus' daughter from the dead, he was part of that little group that was in there. He usually was the first one to say something. While the others were only thinking it, or maybe not even before they thought it, he was already saying it. He was the first Christian preacher at the Pentecost. He was the first fisher of men, as Jesus had promised he would make him. And then the Lord used him also to preach the gospel first to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. By having that vision and going to the house of that Roman centurion, So even though he was not a main preacher of the Gentiles, Paul was, he was still used of God to initiate it. And he was very human, wasn't he? Just like us. His forwardness got him into more difficulty than the other disciples. You know, when he rebuked Jesus... When Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, I don't know what the other disciples were thinking, but Jesus said it and rebuked him, got him into trouble. And especially when he boldly claimed he's going to die with Jesus, he's going to fight, he's going to protect, and he's even willing to die with Jesus. He was boldly speaking it, but he failed. So we can identify with him, can't we? Because we have failures too. And in his failures, he's an example of the Lord's patience and mercy. Jesus took this bold, brash, proud, outspoken, how would I describe him? Fisherman. I could describe him in more, um, less endearing terms, but I think I'll let that go. But the Lord Jesus took him and transformed him into a pillar in the church. That's a testimony of God's grace and a mighty force for the gospel Yes, the Apostle Paul was transformed. Paul was transformed from a persecutor to a preacher. But the transformation of Peter was no less transformational. So there is hope for you and there's hope for me. So I'd like to study 2 Peter, actually, and you can turn there if you wish. We'll uh, read it in a little bit. Peter wrote two letters, what we call first and second Peter. The first letter Peter wrote, he wrote to encourage the Christian that were scattered abroad, the dispersion he called them. Those were uh, I don't I don't know, sure, I don't know if I did if anyone knows for sure, but there were the churches in the Asian minor minor, and that's what is modern Turkey now. They were facing persecution. And He wrote his first letter to encourage them to remain faithful under persecution. And that's understandable. Many are the people who, under persecution, have actually recanted and turned away from God. That's a reality. Many have not, praise the Lord. And the question would come, will I or will you remain faithful if we face psychological or financial or physical persecution? Will we be faithful? So Peter was concerned about his people, and that's why he wrote the first letter, because they were being persecuted. Peter wanted to encourage them. Now, the second letter was written just before Peter's death. Likely, we don't know for sure, but likely he was in prison, but we don't know. But he was pretty sure he was going to die soon. And tradition says that he was um, crucified upside down in Rome under Nero's persecution. In fact, he knew he would die a martyr because Jesus had told him that. And I'm going to just read those few verses. You don't have to turn there. It's in John chapter 21. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Jesus talking to Peter, when thou was young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hand, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. So when Peter wrote this letter, he was expecting that to happen soon. And when you are at the near the end of your life, I'm assuming that I had never been there that I know of. <laughs> but when someone is near the end of their life, things rise to the top of importance. Their priorities Rise up. And as such, Second Peter is the last words and the burdens of the last words of an apostle who knew he was going to die soon. It contains his inmost burdens and his fears and his desires. And of course, it is the inspired word of God. So it's God's word. As God uses human instruments to uh, to say his words, so as such there are also Peter's words. They are God's words, and they are Peter's words. They are God's words coming through the apostle Peter. And so the first letter, Peter wishes to encourage the Christian to remain faithful in persecution. This second letter, Peter is concerned that... We're would remain faithful in the midst of false teachers. And this is where Eldon's message comes in very close. That prophet could withstand the king, but he couldn't withstand that other man. That is actually Peter's burden. It seems incredulous to us That the early church was faced with so much false teaching and false doctrine. And all that during times of severe persecution. Doesn't persecution cleanse the church? Obviously not. And large swaths of New Testament scripture is devoted to combat error. Galatians, Colossians, Paul's pastoral epistles, the letters of James, Jude, and John, and they're all in the first century, and they're all dealing with false or wrong things in the church. So it should not surprise us I should say it should actually not surprise us. Does anybody know? You are—I uh, don't know how much of you younger ones are reading Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you are listening rather than reading. But what did Apollyon, that Apollyon, when Christian was on his way, and Apollyon straddled across the path and blocked him? Does anybody know what Apollyon? Some of the things that Apollyon said to Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. That's fine. He said, talking about himself, there is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects. Neither will I as yet lose thee. So he was being opposed. The devil was opposing Christian. And they had some animated discourse with Christian. And as Christian maintains his loyalty to God, even in the face of this opposition, Apollyon flies into a rage. And then his true heart comes out. I am an enemy of this prince, the prince that Christian was serving. I am an enemy of this prince. I hate his person and his laws and his people i hate him a person his laws his people and i come out to withstand thee so we should not be surprised that the devil uses both persecution and persuasion to to uh, deceive or to destroy rather to destroy god's people the first letter Like I said, dealt with persecution. The second letter deals with persuasion of God's people. The two main themes in this letter I'd like to read, and you can turn now, you're there, in the last two verses in this book actually bring out the two main themes. Verse 17 and 18, so I read verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved... Seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. There in that verse, we see the concern. We see words like fall, led away, error, lose your stability. So that's the burden of Peter. Here's the other burden, verse 8 but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be glory both now and forever Amen here is the answer to the first burden it's to grow grow what's that song that we sing grow, grow, grow and you'll uh, read the Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow that's what it is Growing grace and the knowledge. This is the antidote to error and deception. How does that growth occur? What the, the, the little song says: Read your Bible and pray every day. That is definitely part of it. That is part of it. In fact, that is essential. But Peter gives us more than that, as we see. It's not just a mystical, surreal experience. This book contains some intense shoe leather, practical application in this growing in knowledge. It involves adding very specific character traits to your original faith. And Peter says, or rather God says, if you don't, if you don't do What's in here? You are a sitting duck. Well, he doesn't use those exact words. But it will make you blind. It will make you forgetful. It will make you prone to fall. That sounds to me like an elderly person. Oh, it will make you unproductive. How much... Of an army do you have, if it's full of elderly people that are nearly blind, they're forgetful, they forget the commandments that the commander gave them, and they're prone to falling, and they're unproductive. And we are to be soldiers. And if we do not follow the path that Peter outlines in this letter, we will end up with the characteristics of an elderly person with all the weaknesses and vulnerabilities that they have. Nothing against elderly people. If the Lord tarries and I survive, I will be one of them eventually. But as Christians, we are not to be elderly that way. You know... Like I said, if we have an army of elderly folks, how much strength would we have? I have both an uncle and an aunt that were both almost scammed, seriously scammed, one of them. Because somebody comes and calls them on the phone and says I, I, uh, something, whatever those scams go on. And, and one of them got uh, a huge amount of money from the bank and went to meet them. And someone caught him before the other people came because he believed them. They're vulnerable. Older people are vulnerable. And my aunt and those other scams came and uh, put a coating, a, um, what they call a seal coat on their driveway. And then they wanted $6,000 in cash. So she goes to the bank get $6,000 in cash, and they say, what do you want it for? And they say, you stay right here. And they took care of her because she's vulnerable. That is us if we don't follow Peter's direction here. So that's some of what we'll study, not this morning, mostly. Peter gives us a clear pathway away from that. Today, we will study the first four verses, and I have titled it, Adequate Provisions. Our God is a gift-giving God. And so, to get the context, even though we're only going to go to the first four verses, I'm going to read a good part of the first chapter, so you can turn there. Peter's second letter here. Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained light precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and, our, and, our, and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I would endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. And I think I'll stop there. It's enough of a context. The first verse, there it's writing to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Peter had obtained something precious. And the people he's writing to had obtained something precious. It's called faith. Is faith precious? What kind of faith is precious? I understand that during colonial times, and this would also be true in England, that tomatoes were believed to be poisonous. There were reasons why people believed tomatoes are poisonous. So they used tomatoes for ornamental plants. Just like we tell our children, that plant has berries on it, but don't you eat them. (laughs) that's what people were telling back then, that this plant here, those red things on there don't eat them. They're poisonous. Tomatoes are high in acid. And I don't know if it's the richer people for sure. I don't know about the, the common people, but the richer people had what they call pewter plates or utensils. And they were made of various uh, metals, including lead, and the acid of a tomato would leach out the lead. It would eat the tomato and the lead and die, and the tomato got blamed. And so it became pretty well across the board that tomatoes were considered poisonous because people died after eating them. On top of that, tomatoes are part of the nightshade family of, of uh, plants, and nightshade is very toxic, and they're part of that, so it was easy to believe. Tomatoes are poisonous. Now, you come to me with a tomato, and you want to tell me that they are not poisonous, and you can eat them, they're good, they're good and they're good for you. I believe they're poisonous, but you believe, or you're telling me, rather, that they're not. There are several obstacles I will need to overcome before I will eat that tomato, if I believe they're poisonous. Before I have faith in you, first of all, I have to believe that you love me. Maybe you actually have a secret hatred for me. Maybe you want something I have. Maybe you want my house and you want me to die so you can get what I have or something. I don't know that. You, you look like a friend to me, but I have to believe that you love me and care about me and don't want to poison me. I have to believe that. That's one obstacle I would need to overcome. Another one is I need to believe that you've done the research, that you actually know what you're talking about. I mean, you might actually love me, but you might be wrong. And you might inadvertently kill me. So I have to believe not that you just that you love me, but that you also know what you're talking about. Then I would probably need to believe your testimony because you would say, I have been eating these for several years now and I haven't died. In fact, whenever tomatoes come in season and I eat them, I actually get healthier. My hair begins to shine, my face begins to glow, my eyes sparkle. And that will happen to you if you eat them. And I have to believe your testimony. I guess he thought my eyes didn't sparkle. I have to believe that you're not lying to me. So there you lay that red fruit. It's a fruit, right? Even though we ate juice, ate veggies in there, it's a fruit, I believe. I need to have the faith to what you say is correct. But if, I, if I'm wrong, I die. I mean, it's a pretty big thing. Do I trust you? Do I trust you? Faith is putting confidence in someone, in his person, what he represents, and what he says. That's putting faith in someone. In areas you do not have proof, you may have indications, but you have not proof. If you have proof, you don't need faith. But you need faith if you need to believe something that's based on someone, what someone else says. And that is really what we do with God. Who is God? Does He love us? Or does He hate us? What is God's character? Does God know what he is talking about? Does he know the future? Does he have control of the future? Can he actually sort things out that he can do what he says he will do for you? If he is good, will he actually do good? Can he actually do it? And then, when he says something, is he telling the truth? Is he saying, if you do this, this will happen? Do you believe that? Or does he ultimately wish to harm you? You know, faith is a real part of our lives all the time. We have faith in so many things all the time. We trust the media to report the stories fairly, or we don't. There are two competing views of how the universe came into existence. You either believe the authorities that say the Big Bang came, or you believe the Bible that says God made it. And I'm assuming there would be other, but those are the two main competing theories. You have faith in one of those. There are many experts in how to raise or how to properly raise your children. You can be from A to Z in that. Who are you going to believe? From authoritarian to permissive, from control to choice. Peter says he had a precious faith. He obtained it. He received it. What makes this faith so precious? Well, faith, what does faith do? Faith is like a door. How much is a door worth? Depending what per door you have. I mean, it can be from a couple of boards slapped together with a cross piece and, you know, and a hinge. And you have your door. What's the door worth? Or you get a nice glass door and you can get an expensive door too. But how much is the door work? Not that much. Would you say a door is precious? Not really. A door is not precious. But if the door opens into a palace where when you go in there, you are in the environment of all the blessings of that palace, then that door becomes precious. It becomes worth something. Faith in your friend that came to you with a tomato. To, uh, that faith, if you believe that person, that's the door that will open up your enjoyment of that tomato. That's what the door does. No faith in your friend, no tomato. No faith in God. No partaking of salvation. Hebrews 6:11:6, 6, 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he that's us that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, believe not only in God, but also believe His character. If there would be an isolated town somewhere in the desert where the only source of water would come through a long pipe from another place, a copper pipe, we're going to say a copper pipe. It could be some other, but copper. How much is that pipe worth? Well, you could take that pipe and scrap it up and take it to the recycling and you could get some money for it. But it is worth a whole lot more for the value of that water that comes through there. Faith is the pipe that opens the door to the blessing of God. And that is what is precious. My faith is the pipe by which all the water of life comes, sparkling and rejoicing into my thirsty soul. I went to work one morning at 2 a.m., and there's not too many people around at 2 a.m., and I had left my key of access to the building at home. How much is a key worth? Not much. How much is it worth for its access? Tremendous. I couldn't do my work. I couldn't start my work till I could get into that building, and the key was what I needed. Did you ever forget a password? How much are a jumble of letters and numbers worth? How much is that proper sequence worth to you? A lot. That is what faith is. Faith in itself is only a doorway. But it is access to God. Faith is precious because without faith you have nothing else. For by grace are you saved? Through faith. No faith, no grace, no save. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Faith in what? Faith in who? Well, there in verse it says, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not in our own righteousness, it is faith in the righteousness of God. God alone is good. See, it is God that puts out his hand that we get a hold of. It is not the hand that stretches up to God that causes the tottering man to stand. Yes, it is part of it, but it is really the hand that reaches down, that pulls the man up, that is the salvation. Ours is just the faith to reach up our hand. That's all it is. So let us understand that salvation does not come as the reward of faith, but that the salvation is in the faith because faith is the conduit and by which all of God's salvation pours into us. So Peter is writing we have precious faith and I'm writing to people who had the same kind of precious faith it is very very precious those people he's writing to had believed and had trusted and had experienced God verse 2 grace and peace be multiplied unto you Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now that you have faith, you also have grace and you have peace. It's a natural result of faith. But it's not static. Because Peter says, grow in grace. You can have a little grace and you can have a little peace. And you can have a lot of grace, and you can have a lot of peace. I think of Peter. When he stepped out of that boat onto the water that one night, he had a little bit of faith, but not quite enough. And he lost his peace really, really quickly. Peter knows that the path for grace and peace It needs to be multiplied, and he's wishing them a blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied, and it's through the knowledge of God and of Jesus. The more you experience God, the more you know him, the more you know about his love, his character, his faithfulness, and all those things, his nature, not only in our head, but in our experience. The more you know of him, the more you experience him, the greater you will be, your grace and peace in your life. Well, now I sound like a prosperity gospel preacher, don't I? Everything is linear. It's just like that song that we sing sometimes. I don't think we sing it here anymore. New heights I'm gaining every day. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. It sounds like it's always uphill. It's always higher. It's always better. We lie when we sing, don't we? <laughs> I do We do need to grow in grace, but it's not a steady upward climb. Let me not give you a a, uh, a picture that's not accurate. I actually came across an article that Describes what a person's evaluation of the victorious Christian life looks like. It might not be quite what you had thought. It's uh, by Michael Bird. He says here, and this is actually abbreviated, it was fairly long, so I abbreviated it. This is what I think the victorious Christian life looks like it is the pain, frustration, and misery of the faithful. It is thankless service and sacrifice till you can bear it no more. It is loss and lament. It is brokenness and anxiety. It is feeling defeated and destroyed. It is fear and failure. It is the debris of despair and doubt. It is hope sapped, joyless drudgery. It is looking into the mirror and seeing futility. It is what you do when you realize the Calvary is not coming to help you. You've been abandoned and maybe even betrayed. Victory is crawling and crying all alone in the silence and the darkness, wondering if anyone, even God, cares. Victory is a cold and broken hallelujah. It is there in your sad and wretched state, far away from the celebrations when all your good is forgotten, when your name is a ripple in a sea of anonymity, that God plants the banner of his triumph on your broken body and places a crown of victory on your bloody and tear-stained head and says, this man, this woman was my champion." When all the men were too lazy or too afraid, the boy fought the fight. When everyone else gave up, she ran the race on her own with no man at her side to help her. And it is the joy of heaven to give them the crown of glory. If we take the words of Jesus in Revelation 2 seriously, the victory is not the crown you get later, the reward for all you endured. No, Victory is what you did to get the crown. Your faith, however small, in the midst of despair, that's victory. Your love for others when you felt unloved, that was the victory. Your service when you were burdened with depression or anxiety, that was victory. But it doesn't look like victory, it doesn't feel like victory, it doesn't smell like victory. But God brings triumph all the same. Remember, when Jesus hung on that cross, he did not feel victorious. He felt abandoned. He felt betrayed. He experienced the full extent of human misery. And yet that is when we are told that God has won his victory, his triumph, where he conquered the world and the flesh and the devil. If you think victory looked like ticker tape, ticker tape parade, steady success, your best life now, then I do not hold high hopes for the longevity of your spiritual journey. But if you believe that victory looks like the cross, that it feels like defeat, that it resembles being downtrodden, then you know that when you are wounded, despairing, and powerless, that God is still bringing his victory. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He does that for us, in us, through us, and more often than not, in spite of us. Do you want a life or ministry of victory? Here's the question. Here's the answer. I suggest you pray that your back is strong enough to bear it. So, grace and peace be multiplied. Through how? Through the experiential cross of filling with knowledge of experience with the Lord, Jesus our Lord. I uh, should have done a better job of rephrasing that verse. I don't have it right now. You know, how would grace and peace be multiplied? Through, Jesus, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ the Lord. But what is that knowledge? It's experiential knowledge, and it's experiential knowledge includes the cross. That's the point I want to put in this, this point here. Well, what other provision does God have for us? He has provision for us. He has faith. Then we have peace, grace and peace. And then verse 3, we have some more. according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. To get the flow better, we could change that first word according to seeing as or recognizing. Seeing that his divine power hath given all things. Recognizing And believing, believing, that's part of faith, that the Lord's divine power has given to us everything we need for life and for godliness. Let's look at his divine power. We are reading through the book of Mark at Home and Family Devotions. Don't ask me how regular they are, but we are reading through it. And we read recently about this woman who had this issue of blood for 18 years, and she spent all her money on doctors, and she wasn't better. In fact, she was worse. And then she believed when Jesus came, if I can just touch his robe, if I can just touch his clothing, I'll be healed. So she pressed through, through the crowd that was around Jesus. She pressed through, and she made it, and she touched it. And she immediately felt she was healed. What did she get? She got divine power. That's what she got. That was divine power. There was no other thing except divine power right there. Do you have... A habit. A besetting sin. Issues that cause you to struggle. Blockages in your mind that keep you from going any further. Like I said, this is not a prosperity gospel, hallelujah, happy ever after message. But God says to us, that we have what we need for godliness and for life. He has given it to us. It's his gift. It's a gift that he has given to us. Do you deserve that gift? No. Who are you? Well, we looked back in our history, and you don't have to look too far back. In fact, you might just have to look back as far this morning. Who are you? What do you deserve? Not a whole lot, but he gives us divine power and what we need to overcome. If you believe it like she did, you will also have divine power that will help you overcome. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. You know, before I dissect this verse, I want to point out that all the gifts, all the gifts we're reading the first four chapters, which are the provisions for that Peter is talking about, they're always, always connected to the Lord Jesus. You won't get any of these gifts apart from him. So when he says, called us, through the knowledge of him that hath called us. So we will get that divine power through that knowledge again of him. There are adequate provisions for his people through him. Now, we have been called to glory and virtue. And here's a question that I have. Is who, what is the subject of that glory and virtue? (laughs) Is it us? Or is it God? The general agreement that the focus is on the Lord and the ESV and basically all the other translated, re-translated a little bit, instead of saying called us to glory and virtue, it says called us to his own glory and virtue. We've been called to his. Who has the glory and who has the virtue? It's the Lord. And so I think we should look at it that way. We are called. Called by God. And what are we called to? We're called to his glory and to his virtue. Now, what is God like? Glory talks about God's majesty. And virtue talks about God's activity. We are called to God's majesty. That's what we're called to. And then we're also called to God's activity, his work that he's doing in the world and through us. We've been called to that. And what what is that activity? Let's read the next verse. Some of God's activity whereby or by which are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. <laughs> That's God's activity. His promises, what he told us he would do, is God's activity. Years ago, I used to have a, a book of Bible promises. I don't know where it is today. Any of you have a book of, Bibles, of the Bible's promises right now? It's not a little pamphlet. It's actually a pretty thick booklet. It was a book that contained only Bible verses and was all promises that were given to God's people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a promise. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's a promise. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's a promise. And we could spend the next couple hours going through God's promises. God has given us promises. So we have promises. We have precious promises. We have great and precious promises. And then we have exceeding great and precious promises. That's what Peter says we have. So we have precious faith and we have precious promises. Actually, it's the precious faith that gives us access to the precious promises. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And that's very, very, very bright. Now I'm going to be miring for a little bit, right? That is very, very bright. But not just in the future, because in context, what is he talking about? Well, in context, you see, that by these, these promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's now that promises are for now. The promises mean that you and I can share in his divine nature. We can share in that supernatural life of God. We can have a share in that. You know, you buy stocks. You buy a share of the company. You are a part owner of the company. Did you know you can? This is I don't know if this is sacrilegious or not. I'm trying trying to think it is it or not, but you can have a share in God's divine nature. Uh, We'll talk about that Sunday afternoon discussion, whether that's a proper illustration or not. But you can be a partaker of that divine nature. That is an exceeding great and precious truth. And what does that do? It says, having escaped. You know what I think when I hear the word escaped? I think of prisoners. (laughs) I think of hostages. Imagine a hostage-taking situation where a madman that is irrational can't reason with him. And he's holding you hostage. And he's making demands that you can't meet. And you escape from him you feel pretty good. Well, that's actually the situation here. Escape to corruption. Who are we bound to? We're bound to corruption. It's in the world, and lust means that evil desires is when we want stuff that God does not want us to have, or we want it out of proportion, or we have evil, wrong thoughts or desires. That's us. We're in bondage to it but we have the provision by God through faith, through this whole process, that we, through this promise, that we are part of the divine nature and that we can actually escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. To bring this together to a close, just want to remind you, Peter is soon going to pass on. Very clearly here. And as an older generation moves on, many times they are very concerned about the next generation. Isn't that right? Because the next generation, the older generation can see things are going to happen that are going to be a real trial for the next generation. They can see challenges coming. And so they are burdened. That's Peter. Peter saw things coming down the road, he was very, very, very concerned about his people. So the first part of the letter that we looked at this morning, what Peter did is said, this is the provision that God gave you. This is what you have. And that's a good place to start, is it not? When we we look at what the future is and the battle I didn't think my way through, but let's think of a natural battle. And you're going to go out to war the next day. You would go over all your equipment, your guns, your boots, your clothing, your helmets, your radios, whatever you have, whatever gear you have, this is your provision. This is what's provided for you so that you can go out and fight. And Peter, if this is your provision. This is what you've been given. This first part is what God supplies for you. Now the next part of the message is what we will need to supply. We're not going to get into there. To be truly successful and fruitful, we must work what God has supplied to us. We must work it out. It is not a static or a passive endeavor. Like the parable of the talent, you know, when Jesus gave the parable of the talent and he gave five to one and two to this one and one to this one. They needed to work to be faithful. The person who did not work was unfaithful. And so that'll be the next part of the message To be, to avoid being swept away with the flood of apostasy, there is a God part and there is a man part. God provides, God gives, God multiplies, and then we add. And both are essential. What we looked at this morning was God's part and the next message then will be our part. This letter deals actually with this paradox. How is it that God gives us all we need to please him and yet requires us to work hard to please him? Isn't that a paradox? On the one side, he is pleased when we believe. On the other side, he is not pleased if we don't work also. Being in Christ is salvation. But being like Christ is also salvation. The spirit in a person produces fruit it grows on you but every one of those fruits is also commanded of us as something that we are to put into practice is salvation passive or is it active is it a gift we receive or is it a life we live Peter says yes So that's the message for this morning on adequate provisions that Peter says we have in the Lord. Why don't we just stand for a closing prayer, if you can? Lord, we thank you as we look into your word at the provisions you have given to us. Lord, we were in bondage hostage in corruption and lord even this morning we can confess there are elements of that that want to hang on to us and lord there are some here who are still there so lord there is abundant provision we thank you for the clarity of your word we pray you will work with your spirit in each one of our hearts Help us, Lord, each one of us, to minister to each other and encourage and to bless on this journey to righteousness into your will. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.